And before we begin, there's a little bit of housekeeping um, on my end. Uh, a few weeks ago, I made reference to two disciples of John, Ignatius and Polycarp. And I mentioned that Ignatius fed his pursuers and the men who came to get him and to eventually take him to his martyrdom. But I stand corrected of those two. Both were martyrs, both were disciples of John, but it was actually Polycarp, the younger, who fed his captors, not Ignatius. And so um, I think the good news of God's word is that your perfection is in Christ and not in your pastor. And though we men are frail and we make mistakes, our Lord and Savior and his word is perfect. And in that, we have confidence. Could I have my uh, first slide, please, if that's doable? Well, this morning, we have the joy and the privilege as a church family to celebrate the Lord's table or the Lord's supper together. And we do so, as I said, as a church family. And whatever church you may have been raised in or belong to, it can be easy for the Lord's Supper to become like everything else in church, just another empty and meaningless religious ritual and tradition. Something we do because we're supposed to. Something we do because we see our parents do it. Something we do because it's good for us and everybody at church typically does it. And I certainly remember growing up at one church sitting in the balcony, because that's what we did as adolescents. Uh, you know, it was living big. You didn't have to sit in church with your parents. You got to be free. So the parents would sit down on the ground level. The adolescents would sit up top. And then it became a festival of any number of different things as the Lord's table was being celebrated, depending on what you thought or how you thought you should participate or depending on what was going on. But one thing was clear among the teenagers, you were supposed to do it. Well, this morning as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper uh, together as a church family, I would like us to take some time to pause and just to stop and to put the traditions aside and put our experiences aside and our expectations aside and for us, just simply to listen to what Jesus has to say about this meal that he instituted and he ordained and that he provided for his disciples, what's come to be known as the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper or also communion. And in listening to him and what he has to say about this meal, my hope is that we would gain an appreciation about what makes this meal and this celebration so special, first and foremost, for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then also for us. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And we'll read partway through from verse 7 down to, let's see, we'll go down to 23. Luke 22, 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. 
follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine, until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given For you, do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. Well, if you take a walk through church history, and or if you take a walk through any church, you'll see that there is no shortage of debates and arguments about the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. What it is what it means and what it is for and who's supposed to come and participate and who's not supposed to participate. But as we listen to Jesus, really in all the Gospels, which all complement one another and they are his Gospel, but as we listen to him and his words as he shepherds his disciples through this meal the night before he is going to be crucified, with Jesus there is no debate. And with Jesus, there is no argument. And with Jesus, there is no ambiguity about what this meal is about and about who it is for and what exactly he is doing. The Lord's Supper is a meal that Jesus has ordained. He has ordered for his disciples as a celebration and a declaration of who he is according to God's word. And this morning, really, I just have two points for you, and it's incredibly simple, I think. I hope that the Lord's table is simply a celebration and a declaration of who Jesus is according to God's word, and it is a celebration and declaration of who Jesus' disciples are according to his word. And those two truths become one and come together at the Lord's table. Now, as we walk through the Gospels, we see that according to the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus was a blasphemer and a fraud, an imposter and a false Messiah. And according to Pontius Pilate and the Romans, Jesus was a problem and he was a political headache. 
And according to the world we live in, Jesus is a curse word. He is a joke. And he is a good luck charm. We look to when we rub and sometimes we pray to when we need a job, a friend, or any number of different things to go well in our lives. But according to God's word, Jesus is God's only remedy and salvation for sin and sinners. Jesus is what God's word is all about. And Jesus is the Lamb of God and he is the Lord of all. And as we come to the Lord's table and as Jesus walks his disciples through this meal, which starts as a Passover feast and then becomes communion or the Lord's table, this is what Jesus begins to point them to. Essentially, the Lord's table, Jesus, what Jesus does, as we've read, is he's essentially exegeting or explaining the Passover feast and applying the different elements of the Passover feast and showing his disciples, this is me, this is me, this is me. And I know this sounds really simple, brothers and sisters, but so often, I think, in ministry and life and family, we're part of that generation and age that so often what we think about is, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? What do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to be right before God? What do I need to do in ministry? What do I need to do to be a pastor? What do I need to do to prepare this sermon? What do I need to do to take care of my wife and children? And those are responsible things, brothers and sisters. And we do need to consider what we need to do. But not, brothers and sisters, at the expense of who Jesus is. And sometimes we can be so focused on what we need to do that we fail to see who it is who loves us and has given his life for us. And the purpose of the Lord's table is we come to it, Jesus has given it, and he says to his disciples that night, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. It's just a deep longing desire in love for his disciples. And when you go to the Gospel of John, John records that Jesus at this time the night before his death, what we think, what would you be thinking about the night before your death? Your will, your insurance, what you need to do. But Jesus is concerned about loving and caring for his disciples. And John shares that Jesus, as he loved his disciples, he loved them till the very end. And in loving them, his desire is that they would know who he is. How sad sometimes in our relationships that we function as roommates and partners and we forget who it is who loves us and who the Lord has graciously put into our lives. And so that's why our Lord and Savior in mercy and grace to his disciples and for us uses the Passover feast and this meal, the Lord's Supper, is an opportunity to have his disciples pause and to show them from God's word and from God's story of salvation who he is and how he loves them. Because how he loves them is part of who he is. And that's what sets him apart. And the testimony of Luke, along with Matthew and Mark and John, is not by accident this final meal that Jesus 
coordinates and oversees the night before he is crucified begins as a Passover meal that is ordained by Jesus, as he points out, for his disciples. And as we come to the, what's referred to as the upper room, but as we come to this room, very specifically, it's not all his disciples, it's limited to who Luke refers to as the apostles. It is the twelve. It is the inner circle. It is those men who have left everything and have repented and placed their faith in Jesus and let go of everything to walk with Jesus. And it is the men who over the previous three years, Jesus has loved, he's cared for, he's fed, he's protected, he's watched over. And in Luke 22, 7, Luke shares, he says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, and that's his inner circle, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And as I said before, as you walk through the Lord's Supper, essentially what Jesus does is he takes the elements of the Passover feast and he applies it to himself. And in Exodus 12, you'll recall that the Passover is what the Lord God first commanded while the children of Israel were still slaves in Egypt under the tyranny and rule of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's false gods. And on the night before the Lord delivers and saves them from the tyranny and rule of Pharaoh and Egypt, in love he prepares his people for his salvation and his deliverance. It's interesting to see how the Lord prepares his people that they need to be prepared for what's going to happen. They need to be prepared for this salvation. And he does so with a command. He does so by letting them know, here's where you need to start. You need to know that I am the Lord. And I am the one true God. And I am greater than Pharaoh. And I am greater than all the false gods in Egypt. I'm the one who calls the shots. That's the beginning of God's preparation for his salvation. And the Lord God commands the head of every household to take and slay an unblemished one-year-old lamb at twilight. And if you look at the fine details in Exodus 12, and I'd encourage you to read them, because it's a wonderful chapter. But in fact, he tells the head of the household to take a lamb, an unblemished one-year-old lamb, out of their fold of the sheep and goats. And to keep that lamb for four days... That means you and your family and everybody gets to know this is the one. And this lamb gets to know this is, maybe they don't know, but there's an awareness that this is part of the family. And then after you've gotten to know this lamb, it's one thing not to know them. The head of the household is commanded to slay this lamb. And then to take the blood of this lamb and to cover the doorposts with its blood. And the members of each household were to eat this lamb along with bitter herbs and unleavened bread with urgency and haste, with their staff in hand, ready to leave Egypt. And I do believe in part, one of the things the Lord is communicating to his people, the urgency of his salvation. Brothers and sisters, do we take God's offer of salvation and deliverance as a command that needs to be dealt with urgently? Or do we delay 
and put off obeying the Lord. Well, the Lord made it clear they were to do this urgently and with haste. Because that same night, the Lord God would deliver them by executing His righteous judgment on Egypt. God had delayed His judgment against Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And we know that with God, as we will see with the sacrificial system, and then later in Romans, that the wages of sin is death. And the execution the Lord would deliver that evening on Egypt and Pharaoh was the execution of all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And the only households that would be spared or saved would be the households that had trusted and obeyed the Lord as their God. Those households that had trusted and obeyed the Lord, His promise that He was going to save them, and His command, if you want to be saved, this is what you must do. You must slay the lamb and cover the doorpost with its blood. You must come under the blood of the lamb and you must eat or partake of the life of this lamb. You must eat this lamb along with bitter herbs, a symbol of the bitterness of slavery and their life under the bondage of a terrible king and unleavened bread. Those households that trusted and obeyed the Lord and kept His command by God's promise would be saved because as the angel of death came over Egypt, the angel would pass over the houses that were marked with the blood of the Lamb. Now I know children and adults were familiar with this story. But it's worth noting some of the details. Because as you walk through the rest of Exodus 12, you see that this is exactly what happens. And the Lord makes a point to the people. He says to them very specifically that this blood will be a sign for you. This blood will be a sign for you. And the point that the Lord makes is there is nothing mystical or magical in the blood of a lamb or the blood of animals. Your salvation does not come from an animal or from a ritual. Brothers and sisters, as we come to the Lord's table, our salvation is not based on a tradition or a ritual. A sign is a visible marker that points to a spiritual reality. A sign is a visible marker that points to a spiritual reality. And the blood of the Lamb was meant to be a sign that pointed to the spiritual reality that the Lord is God. That His word needs to be obeyed by all men. And that salvation comes from the mighty hand of God alone. That He alone can save. Pharaoh can't save you. President Biden can't save you. Your friends can't save you. Your family members can't save you. The Lord alone can save you. And salvation is found one way. Through faith in the Lord and obedience to His command. Because it is the Lord who will provide a sacrifice. And the Lord who will provide a substitute. And the Lord will provide a payment for the sins of those who trust Him. 
with a trust that is proven by an obedience to his command. The blood is a sign that the Lord must provide a way of salvation for sinners. And that salvation is found only when the guilty are willing to embrace the life of the innocent as their own in payment for their sin. The Lord will flesh this out in Leviticus and in the rest of the Old Testament as he explains the sacrificial system that he begins here. But it is a system that points to the truth and the reality of who God is. He is the Lord who in mercy and grace saves by providing a sacrifice and a substitute that we cannot provide for ourselves. And the Lord goes on after all of this is accomplished in Egypt. And the children of Israel are brought out. In Exodus 12.14, the Lord also commands His people that they are to keep the Passover as an annual holiday or feast. In Exodus 12.14, He says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And then in the next chapter, in Exodus 13.8, he begins to explain why. He says, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And so this Passover celebration, which would happen annually, was to be a memorial, a reminder. A reminder of what? First and foremost, who the Lord is. For the Jewish Old Covenant people, the Lord is the one true God who saved us. He's the one true God who brought us out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt and brought us out for Himself to make us the people of God. He is the one who has made us who we are today. We are the children of His salvation. And it was also a memorial that pointed out the salvation of the Lord, though it is a one and done event. That exodus, it happened once. But the impact on the lives of the children of Israel, God's intent, was that His salvation would change their lives forever. Not be the same not go back, not function as slaves in Egypt or worshipers of Egypt's God, but delivered and brought in to a completely new life with a completely new king in a completely new covenant. A covenant is a relationship bound by a promise and a completely new purpose and destiny in their lives. That purpose and destiny is to live in the life and love of the Lord rather than living in the life and the hatred of Pharaoh and the things of this world. Who is the Lord? Well, the Passover feast was designed to show them and remind them exactly who the Lord is. And as we come back to Luke and to the Gospels, we see this Passover meal 
that Jesus begins to eat with his disciples the night before he is crucified is a meal that is of utmost importance for Jesus to celebrate very specifically with the 12 disciples. He says in Luke twenty-two fifteen through 16, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And as Jesus walks through this Passover feast with the disciples, he begins to show them, <clears throat> excuse me, step by step, that this Passover feast is really all about him. It's Jesus' explanation or his exegesis of the Passover feast. And what he does is he goes step by step through the different elements of the Passover feast. And he lets them know as you go through this section, this is about me. This is about me. This is about me. And he draws a direct connection between the lambs that are being slaughtered for the Passover feast and the suffering he is about to experience the next day on the cross. And of course you know that throughout the Gospels Jesus is repeatedly telling his disciples we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be crucified there. We're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man is going to be crucified there and he's going to be raised up on the third day. So he's letting them know every step of the way. And then as he comes to this meal, he's drawing a direct connection with the entirety of God's word, the entirety of God's sacrificial system, the entirety of God's plan of salvation. And he's letting them know, this is all fulfilled and this all points to me and what I'm about to do for you tomorrow. He is the Lamb of God. And that was already proclaimed by John the Baptist. And He's the Lamb of God whose blood will be shed for the forgiveness of their sins and for their entrance into the kingdom of God. He is going to be the price, pay the price. And He is the one whose life is going to be given in surrender and sacrifice as a covering for them. Just like the Passover feast. And as the Passover meal proceeds, Jesus takes the elements of the Passover feast and he uses them as symbols and signs that point to his life and what he's about to do. In verse 19 he says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This is my body which is given for you. Now, there are many different interpretations of this text. But as we go to God's word, and we go and we keep in mind that Jesus is explaining this within the context of the Passover, that he is the Passover lamb. In the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East, bread was a symbol of life. Bread was a symbol of what sustained you day by day. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And we think of the bread that's given to the children of Israel as they go through the wilderness provided by God. And Jesus, of course, during his ministry makes reference and says, I am the bread of life. Bread is a symbol of life. Bread is a symbol of what sustains us. And in the Passover feast and in this meal, the bread that Jesus would have handed to the disciples would have been what's called today matzah. Unleavened bread. It is a dry and tasteless 
cracker that is, and I love my dear Jewish brothers. I speak of that as friends, not as brothers in the family of God who have invited me to Passover meals. I don't want to insult them. But I usually only enjoy matzah and matzah ball soup. Because on its own, and it was intended to be that way. When you go back to the Passover feast in Exodus 12, the Lord commands the people that they are to eat only unleavened bread. And they are, in fact, for the feast, they are to get rid of all the leaven in the house. And they are to eat unleavened bread for seven days. Now, for those of you who like to bake bread, you have starter dough and sourdough somewhere in your kitchen, giving your wife grief. And it sits there, and it grows, and it bubbles, and you feed, and it drips everywhere, and you keep it. And why do you put up with it? Because this is the bacteria and the leaven that gives your bread life. It's what makes it fluffy. It's what makes it rise. Without that sourdough starter, all you have is flour and water. It's what gives that bread life. And you know, those of you who do this, I don't know who does it, but those of you who do this, when you have it, You cherish it and you protect it because that is what gives you continuity and keeps your bread going week in, week out. And in fact, if you go to a website of a famous bread maker in San Francisco, their boast is that their mother or their starter dough goes all the way back to the gold rush. And the legend apparently is that the mother of the family, when the San Francisco fire happened, the one thing she ran in for as the whole house and everything was burning down was her bucket of starter. That lineage, that providence that shows that this bread goes all the way back to the gold rush and this is what gives it its distinctive flavor and taste and life. Well, the Lord comes in in Passover and he says, hey, no mas. Probably said it in Hebrew, not Spanish. But he said, no more. It's done. It's over. You are to get rid of all your starter dough. Get rid of it and out. Number one. You don't have time to make bread. And for those of you who bake, you know it's a two to three day process. Right? Got to mix it, got to wait, got to wait for it to rise. It's easier to use industrialized yeast, right? But it, it takes a long time. Number one, the urgency of the salvation and the life that God is about to give. Don't waste time. But the second is that the bread is to be a symbol of a new beginning. The bread is a symbol of life. And the Lord is telling them, you are coming into a new life. You are to start over again. You are to get rid of all the old. And this is to be a completely new start, new beginning. And he's explained to them in the Passover that their salvation is not just a deliverance from slavery. God is bringing them into a completely new life. And to enjoy that life and enjoy that love, they have to walk away and separate And bring an end to their past life. And you know as you walk through the rest of Exodus, this is something they struggled to do. In fact, you'll read, they still kept their household gods. They still kept things. They looked back at Egypt. They had a hard time leaving Egypt behind. Now, brothers and sisters, nobody wants to be a slave. 
And everybody's happy when someone comes along and says, I'll free you from your slavery. I'll free you from your drug addiction. I'll free you from your anxiety. I'll free you from whatever it is you're struggling with. But it's something completely different. Say, okay. Part of the deal is that you will start all over again and begin a completely new and different life. And you must walk away from all that ugliness and darkness that has been keeping you in bondage. That's something completely different. And quite frankly, it's something we're unable to do. And the children of Israel showed that. What is the difference? What is it that enables us? It's the gift, not only of a completely new life, but it's the gift of a new Lord who is able to sustain us and give us a new life and give us life day in, day out and sustain us and keep us in a life that is completely free and separate from that old life that we've left behind. And so, when Jesus comes to the disciples and he takes that bread and he gives thanks for it to the Lord and he breaks it and he gives it to them and he says, this is my body which is given for you within the context of the Passover feast and God's word, I believe very clearly he's showing them. Obviously on the cross, he is going to give his life for them. Obviously this is about his sacrifice and his substitution for them. But he is showing them that what sets them apart is the life that he is giving to them. That he is the Lamb of God and he is the Lord who is giving his life to them. And this is what they share together and this is what he's bringing them to. Who is Jesus? Is he your friend? Is he your buddy? Is he your life coach as Dan made reference to last week? Is he your trainer? Or is he the Lord of your life? A life that is completely new and separate from what you once were. Well, Jesus goes on to say, do this in remembrance of me. And he says, and likewise, verse 20, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. A covenant, brothers and sisters, as I've said before, is a relationship that is bound with a promise. A relationship that is bound with a promise. It's a non-negotiable relationship that is permanent. And so that's why we talk about the covenant of marriage. Jesus communicates through the Lord's Supper that He is the Lord of the new covenant. A relationship bound with a promise. A relationship that is permanent and eternal. A relationship that is promised by God. And when you go to Jeremiah, you see that the new covenant is a covenant of forgiveness. Where God promises that those who by faith, who participate in it, will be forgiven of their sins and they will be given a new heart and a new life. Who is Jesus? Jesus 
is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lord of the new covenant. Jesus is the giver of a new life. Jesus is the one who has ratified and made this covenant possible by the shedding of his blood. And when he says, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, he's making reference in the Old Testament to the Mosaic covenant where every covenant that was made with God with his people was ratified with the sacrifice of an animal as a symbol pointing to the need of life for life. And it's with these words that the Lord has inaugurated and instituted the new covenant of forgiveness and salvation in his blood that transforms who his disciples are. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. The Lord's Supper is a celebration and a declaration of who Jesus' disciples are according to his word. The Lord's Supper is a celebration and declaration of who Jesus' disciples are according to his word. In many ways, the Lord's Supper is a meal that is not unlike a wedding anniversary. A wedding anniversary, you know, we have many meals with our spouses. We have many meals with the significant others in our lives. But a wedding anniversary is something different. A wedding anniversary is not like every meal I sit down with my wife in the kitchen, I hope. Why is that? What's involved in a wedding anniversary is a celebration of love. And it's a celebration of love because it's a celebration of the people in this relationship. It's not only a celebration of the other person who is in front of me, it's a celebration of what I mean to that person and what that person means to me. It's a celebration that I love this person and that I am this person's beloved. When Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, in the Old Testament, remembrance is an act of love. Repeatedly, as God talks about remembering his children, what follows typically is an act of salvation where he looks out for them and cares for them and he sacrifices on their behalf. The idea of forgetting is hating. That we forget what is not important to us, we remember what we love. And so when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, I want the disciples together to partake of this. This is an act of love. And it demonstrates that the disciples are the beloved of Jesus. Who is it who's invited to the feast? Those who love the Lord and those whom the Lord loves. And as we walk through, we see Jesus is identifying step by step who the disciples are now in light of who he is and what he's done for them. Brothers and sisters, do we think of ourselves as Christians in light of who Jesus is and in light of what he has done for us? Do we think of ourselves as Christians as I am the one who Christ loves? This is what sets me apart. What sets me apart in my place of work is I am the one who Christ has died for. What sets me apart in my home and my marriage is I am the one who Christ 
sacrificed everything and suffered humiliation, rejection, pain and punishment that he did not deserve so that I might be forgiven and I might live his life. Husbands, next time you need to clean the dishes in the sink or take care of the kids when your wife is gone. Think about that one. And it's through the Lord's Supper that Jesus shows the disciples are those who have new life in Him. The disciples are those whose lives are united first with Christ, but then also with one another. And that's why He takes one cup and He passes it around and tells them to partake of it, divide it up among you. And that's why He takes the bread and He breaks it. And He says, eat this, and it's one allegedly piece of bread, what he's showing them is they are connected, they are sharing, they are tied together. And what is it that ties them together? It's the life of Christ. This is what they share. This is what they live. This is what they partake. And this is what binds them together. And so they share together the life and love of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see in the local church, and the elders had a conversation about this last night, how often do we think what I do affects the person who sits at the back of the church? And how often does the person who sits at the back of the church think what they do affects me? And I believe Jesus makes something of a reference or an application here at the very end where he talks about one of you is going to betray me. The idea of one member who's come and who has for a season partaken of my love and partaken of my life is going to sell me out. And there is going to be a severe judgment on that person because what he has done is going to affect everybody and yet there is hope because God has ordained and what men mean for evil, God will use for good. Through the Lord's Supper, Jesus demonstrates that the disciples are part of God's story of salvation that goes back to the very beginning from Genesis 1.1. Through the Lord's Supper, Jesus shows the disciples that those who come under the blood are marked as people who belong entirely to God and to the disciples and as the Lord of the supper, he is demonstrating that the disciples who participate in his life and love are people who are now marked by the spiritual reality that the entirety of their lives belongs to the Lord and it belongs to one another, that they are one. Brothers and sisters, who are we? How do we see ourselves? Well, the Lord's Supper is meant to be an encouragement to you. That as you come to the Lord's table, you stop for a moment or a minute, just like at a wedding anniversary. And you consider who it is who has loved you and what they've done for you, but you also begin to consider who am I to them. And as you come to the Lord's table and you partake of the bread and you partake of the cup, and these are merely symbols and signs that point to a spiritual reality. The Lord is using it as an opportunity whereby faith in Christ 
we are able to put off the world and everything that it says we are or we were. And we are to remember that we are forgiven past, present, and future. And we are to remember that we were bought with a price. We belong entirely to Christ. And the life that we live and the life that we love and the life that we share belongs entirely to Him, but also belongs to all the others who love and keep His commands. And it's not a mystery or a mystical or special experience, but it is a profound encouragement by the power of the Spirit and the Word that transforms us minute by minute, moment by moment, as we participate in the life and love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by obeying His Word and His commands. Now, if I never obey my wife, and we understand what I'm saying, I'm the head of the household, but if she asks me to do something, and I never listen to her. What does that say about our relationship? It ain't good and it ain't going to get better. Right? Fair enough. And so as we come to the Lord's table and we consider who is invited and how are we to participate in the Lord's table? And I'll try and draw this to a close at this time. Let me say first that the Lord's table that we're about to participate in it is for everyone. It is for everyone. Now let me qualify that statement. Those who are to come and actually partake of the bread and partake of the cup are to be disciples of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Jesus makes a statement before he dies. He says to them, a new commandment I give to you. You are to love one another as I have loved you. And then he goes on to say, greater love has no man than he who lays down his life for his friends. And then he goes on and says, you are my friends if you keep my commandments. The actual literal participation are for those who belong to Jesus. The actual participation in the meal, which is a family meal, are those who share his life and love. And the proof and evidence of that is a love for Christ that's expressed in obedience to his commands. Plain and simple. Another way of saying that is the fruit in keeping with repentance. If the testimony of your life is such that the pattern of your life is not necessarily perfection, but it's love for Christ, you know Him, you belong to Him, and the trajectory of your life is obedience to His commands, then you are a friend of Christ and you are invited to come as a celebration that Christ loves you and you love Him and you belong to Him and you are part of the household of God. His blood has covered you. And it's an act that we participate in by faith. Faith in Christ's work on the cross that has brought us together and given us new life. Not faith in anything that I do. Do you have to be perfect? No. Is it a celebration of the forgiveness of sins that we receive? Absolutely. But the reason I say this table is for everyone is because though the actual participation is for the friends of Jesus and part of His family, 
And that term friends is probably a little closer to family. It's philon. It's those I love or have affection for. Like Philadelphia, the brother, city of brotherly love. Okay? But the reason it's for everyone is because the celebration of the Lord's Supper is meant to be a declaration and celebration of who Jesus is and who his disciples are. It's a declaration and celebration that Christ has made this supper and this family and this salvation available to all men, including the worst of sinners. And you are invited to come, but there's only one way to come. Through repentance and faith in Christ as the crucified and risen Lord. And in fact, the meals that led up to the Lord's table in the New Testament were referred to as love feasts. And that is because they exemplified the love of Christ on the cross. And they were designed first and foremost for Christ's household, but they were also designed as a witness to the world to say, this is the light of Christ's salvation. He has come. He is alive. He has made this available to you all. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so, church family, as we come this morning, I want to invite you to come to a table by faith in remembrance of Him. Remembering of who Jesus is and what He's done for you, but also remembering who you are to Jesus. That you are His beloved and He has given His life for you. But if you're visiting with us today and you do not know Him, this table is meant to be an invitation with urgency and haste that the Lord's judgment is coming into this world. But the Lord in mercy and love has provided a way for you too to become a child of God. How? Not by anything that you can do and say, but by faith, believing that Jesus is indeed Lord, the one who has died and risen from the grave. And this day is an opportunity for you to repentance and faith in Him to become a child of God who is welcome to the table. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, how merciful and gracious are You. You are the Lamb of God. You are Lord of all. You are the lover of our souls. You are the one who has brought us into a new life and love that is all about You and not the fallen things of this world. We come to you today and ask that you would prepare our hearts. As we come to the table, would we be reminded and would we remember as an act of love of all that you have done for us? But would we also remember what we are to you? That we are precious, that we are beloved, that we are forgiven, and that we are the one people of God who have been united by the blood of the cross and the life that you have given. We thank you for these things. In your name we pray. Amen.